Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Overcoming Doubt by Pastor Sean Wood. All right, let's get on with this morning's message. Uh, Just a quick word of prayer um, as we come around His Holy Word and uh, then we'll move on into Overcoming Doubt. Father, we do thank you for your hand of sovereignty we see in this country. We actually acknowledge that it's the hand of God. We are thankful for the position that we are in when we look at the global scale. We do ask, oh God, that you would move in power in all the other countries in this time of uncertainty and crisis. Lord, as we open your word today, I pray that our hearts would be opened. I pray that our ears would be opened. All scripture is God breathed, breathing us today. I pray that as your word goes forth, that's my prayer this morning in the wonderful and glorious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Uh, for those of you that have your Bibles, we're going to jump around a little bit this morning, but uh, try and stay with me if you can. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about overcoming doubt. Now, uh, I want to make a couple of statements and we'll qualify them as we make our way through. First thing I need to tell you is uh, doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is fear. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. We'll, we'll deal with fear next week and we'll kind of expose why that is the case. Also, if anybody tells you they've never, that they don't have any doubts and they've never had any doubts, they are lying to you. Truth is, right now, as we expose what doubt really is, then we're, we're going to see that we probably all suffer from this. I know I was challenged this week as I went over what doubt really is. I, I began to just come before the Lord and say, you know what, Lord, I... I can see that there's areas in my life. I'm going to tell you that it's okay to have questions and it's okay to ask your questions. In fact, I would encourage people to do so because the more we proactively eliminate and deal and confront our doubts and deal with those, the more we come along the area of conviction and moving before God. I, I recall uh, most people here know, of course, that uh, every now and again I do a little bit of fishing. But when I was in Tasmania, I did quite a lot of trout fishing and I uh, fished a lot of lakes. And we did a lot of boat fishing in Tasmania as well on, uh, on a lot of various lakes, but mostly on a, on a lake called Arthur's Lake. What, what some of us may not appreciate is it, it gets windy here in Queensland, but man, it blows a gale in Tasmania at times and it really whips the lakes up. We can... On these inland lakes, you can have swells of one and a half to two metres on these inland lakes, uh, and that can cause a lot of havoc for a 14 or 15 foot boat when you're trying to fly fish. But, but if the waves are heading in one direction, if even if they're one and a half to two metres, then you can punch into the waves, you can kind of deal with that. But there's a phenomenon that happens on Arthur's Lake, a lake that we fish quite often, particularly when it blows the stiff nor'wester. What happens is in the middle of Arthur's Lake, we have, a, we have Brazendale's Island. Uh, there's no Tasmanians here that would probably know what I'm talking about. But if you're listening to me and you're from Tasmania, you'll know what I'm talking about. But what happens is when the nor'wester hits Brazendale's Island, on the northwestern side, it's fine. Everything's happening in one particular pattern and but if you come to the other side of Brazendale's Island, heading towards the, the Dam Wall, you'll find that what happens is the wind sweeps around the island. And when you come to the other side, you have what we call a, a confused sea. 
It's where the waves are going in more than one direction uh, and it can cause havoc. It can, this is what tips people out of boats. We, we have had people uh, on, on many occasions that have uh, underestimated these kinds of conditions and have succumbed to them uh, terribly. Kids, families, uh, uh, terrible people. It's terrible. The water is freezing sometimes and and so the, it's what they call a confused sea. Anybody with any kind of maritime background would know what I mean. It's where the waves, instead of going in one pattern, are all over the place or going in two different directions. Uh, what I've just described to you, a confused sea, is actually what it means to doubt. You see, uh, the English meaning for the word doubt is to, to have a, a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. Let me try and clarify a little bit. If, if you've got your Bibles, in James chapter 1, I, w- I want to read a passage because if we are going to overcome doubt, then we need to understand doubt. When next week, when we look at overcoming fear, we need to understand what fear is. And, and the week after, in un- overcoming unforgiveness, it will help us to understand what forgiveness really is. But, but what is doubt? What does it look like? And you see, the biblical terminology of doubt is to stand in two ways, uncertain of which way to go. Let's, let's have a look at James chapter 1, if you've met me there already, and we'll start in verse 5, and it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It's, if you lack wisdom, ask God. If you ever wondered why sometimes God is apprehensive in putting stuff into our lap and giving us stuff, then these verses might begin to draw some of that out. Verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. There's, there's this uncertainty. There's this unreliability. There's this lack of conviction. You know, on one side of Brazendale's Island, everything's fine. Why? Because the waves might be big, but they're all moving in the one direction. <laughs> a confused sea doesn't know where they're going. It's blown and tossed about by the wind. And, and, and this is why doubt is such a problem because what we are seeing in the church is that doubt is like being that water. We, we become susceptible to the pressures around about us and we move according to the next pressure, just like those waves. We're all over the place. We're going nowhere, but everywhere. That's doubt. It's a lack of conviction. It's to be tossed about, wavering. James goes on and gives us uh, some more understanding to what he's talking about. Verse 7, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He must not suppose. Why? Because he is a double-minded man and he's unstable in all his ways. When we read the Old Testament, God comes and speaks against his people through the prophets. And when he does, he's speaking about a double-mindedness. He's speaking about their indecision. He is speaking about the fact that they're all for God one minute and then they're all for the things of the world and the idols of the world another minute. They're blown and tossed about. They're, They're allowing the world to dictate to them. They're allowing the pressures of the world to dictate to them who they are. You know, I want to I want to go right out on the record this morning. 
morning. And I want to say it is time for the church of Jesus Christ to stop doubt, to cease doubt, to deal with our doubts. Why? Because all too often we've allowed the world to tell us who we are. We've allowed the world to govern what it is that we say. We, we all too often allow the world to silence us, to pressure us and to shape us. Why? Because we just allow the pressures. Or too often, uh, and this is one that I'm very passionate about, or too often we have, uh, we have taken the voice of science and allowed it to shape our thinking. And it causes doubts in our minds. It causes uncertainty in our ways. It causes a lack of conviction And that means that the church of Jesus Christ has all of the power and all of the evidence, but no drive. We're not not going anywhere. We're not using it. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, completely unreliable. We wonder why God doesn't move in our midst. We wonder why God doesn't move in power in our midst. Why? Because we're unstable. We're unreliable. We can be full of doubt. Now, I want to be clear this morning. If you are living in doubt or you have doubt, it's sin because it's displeasing to God. I'm I'm going to touch on that in a moment and show you why this is all so very important. But it's displeasing to God. But what we're going to find is, we're going to take the example of two guys today as we look at overcoming doubt. We're going to find that often in Scripture... It is not only what Scripture says that is enormously profound, but what is not said. It's, it's what Jesus doesn't say to the two guys we're going to look at today. It's what Jesus doesn't say that is so deeply profound when he's dealing with two people ridden with doubt. Doubt comes to us uh, in, in many different ways. We can, we can doubt not only the things of God, but we do. <laughs> that's, why I, that's why I'm so passionate about exposing the enormous amount of evidence there is because if, if I can attack doubt, I am moving you towards conviction. That's what Jesus was doing. That's, Jesus was always moving his disciples and he was always moving every person, no matter what sphere they were, he was always moving them to, to absolute commitment, absolute conviction, absolute uh, abandonment to him always presenting evidence, always speaking the truth, always performing miracles. And, and so in any way, shape or form that I can put on the table evidence for who God is and, and the existence for God, I'll do so because if it removes doubt, it increases conviction in the right areas. You know, Enoch, this is... This is is a guy, I want to give you an example of what it looks like to live a life without doubt. Enoch, Genesis chapter 5, tells us about a man by the name of Enoch, and there's not much written about Enoch, which is profound. What's not written is profound, but but what we do read is this. Enoch was a man who walked with God, or or the Hebrew there is pleased God. uh, Enoch was a man who pleased God. In Hebrews chapter 11... Uh, the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know, many people take a stab in the dark, but nobody really knows who wrote Hebrews. But, but the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 11 is giving us a list of the heroes of faith and Enoch gets a mention. <laughs> Verse 5. 
by faith, Enoch had this commendation that he pleased God. And God took him and he was not for God took him, it says. And then it goes on in the very next verse after mentoring Enoch. It goes on in the very next verse. And I, I, I hope I'm speaking to everybody this morning when I say, who wants to come near to God this morning? Put your, put your hands up right where you are. Who wants to be near God? Well, here's a prerequisite for you. Here's a, here's a kind of condition. If you want to be near God, you need this because Enoch lived near God. And this is why I'm attacking doubt because when we remove doubt, we come closer to God. A verse six of Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it says, it is impossible to please God. For those who come near to him or those who come to him must believe that he exists and so often we keep reading those verses thinking that that belief is just a mental agreement that it's just a that we're just kind of mentally assenting to some kind of uh, facts about God but that's 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 so much not what it is. That verse actually talks about in the Greek there, it's actually talking about uh, must believe that he exists means that you live your life as though God exists. You live your life in the reality of the existence of God. <laughs> ah. I want to ask you today, is that your life? Is your life summed up like Enoch, he just lived and pleased God. He was a man full of faith. He, he came near to God. Why? Because he lived his life here on earth in the full assurance, in the full conviction of the reality of God. I tell you now, friends, I, I, I pass you this encouragement this morning. If we lived our lives like that, we would turn the world upside down for Jesus. We must overcome our doubts. Because doubt is a lack of conviction. Doubt stands at the line. You see, uh, Jesus is all about rubbing out the grey. We're all about writing everything in grey and Jesus is all about black and white and rubbing out the grey. We like to invent grey zones, <laughs> demilitarised zones. It's okay, God, it's, you know, the war's over there or over there, but we're here in this kind of fake demilitarised zone. It doesn't exist. Jesus wants everybody to know it doesn't exist. You've got to choose your side and you've got to do so with conviction. Mm. I want to talk to you today, particularly the last guy we're going to talk about. He was a guy that stood at the line, knew what it meant to cross that line and didn't have the conviction. And he overcame that and he crossed that line. We'll have a look at the end of his story today. I want to introduce you to the first guy this morning. He's a guy, if you can turn to Matthew chapter 11, that you may not have thought we were going to talk about today. Uh, and of course, Matthew chapter 11 tells us, uh, verse 1, we're actually talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, what? Now, who is John the Baptist? And what has taken place to get us to Matthew chapter 11? We need this context. John the Baptist is known as the forerunner for Christ. He was the one that would come to prepare the way. You see, John the Baptist, he, uh, he gave up, he abandoned everything for Jesus. He put everything on the line. His whole life was on the line for Jesus. He lived his life in the full conviction, the full conviction that he was the forerunner and the Messiah was to come. It is this John the Baptist that would see Jesus approaching and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
It's this John the Baptist that would baptise Jesus in the waters of the Jordan and see the Holy Spirit descend on him, not as a dove, like a dove. <laughs> Descriptive. Like a dove. The Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Imagine seeing that. Here's a guy that had the message of repentance. Repent, therefore, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's a man that spent his life out in the wilderness. People went out into the wilderness to see him. He he lived his life dressed in camel's hair. No Giorgio Armani out in the wilderness, friends. He... He lived his life dressed in camel's hair and lived on locusts and wild honey. <laughs> locusts? Friends, give me kale, please. Here's a man that sacrificed much. Here's a man that devoted his whole life. And here's a man that's got some questions. Let's have a look at this unfold here for a moment. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Verse 2. Now, when John, John the Baptist, heard in prison. John's in prison. Here's a little bit more context that we need. Why is John in prison? John's in prison, uh, imprisoned by Herod, uh, actually because he spoke up about the sanctity of marriage. (laughs) You see, Herod was... Far too intermingled family-wise, marriage-wise. You can unpack this at another time. But John stood up and said, this is sinful, man. This is not what marriage is and this is sinful. And Herod didn't want to kill him because everybody held him to be a prophet. So he puts him in prison and John's in prison. John knows that his time is coming. John knows that he's banked his whole life on Jesus. And now he has a question in verse 2. It says, and now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. Verse 3, and he said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? What? Are you the one to come, Jesus? Are you, are you the Messiah? That's, that's what John's asking here. Are you, are you the Lamb of God? Are you the Son of God? You see, John's got some questions. John's got some doubts. If you're, if you're taking notes this morning, step number one in overcoming doubt is to be honest and open about your doubts. It's about exposing your doubts and confronting your doubts. <clears throat> All too often, we try to do the whole super spiritual thing and sweep out, no, I don't have any doubts. I don't have any questions. And we live with these niggling questions that steal our conviction. They hold us in place and they they shackle us to the ground and we can't move forward with God because we're nailed to the ground by these doubts that won't let us go. That's why we must expose them. That's why we must deal with them so that we are free to move on into life with Christ. Let me me give you an example of what this looks like. Uh, Most of us here are married are listening to me and maybe some are even preparing to be married and I hope that before you got married you had some kind of marriage preparation and and 
overarchingly, we do marriage preparation for a number of reasons to try and remove unrealistic expectations of what marriage is really like. Marriage is a beautiful thing. It's a gift that God has given us. So please enjoy it. And, and I, I have been happily married for over 20 years and I will be happily married to my wonderful wife for many years to come. I'm very thankful to her. I had the opportunity to marry above myself 20 years ago. So I took that opportunity. But but in pre-marriage counselling, and I'm uh, working through this with some people as well as when I went through it myself, here's overarchingly what I'm trying to do. Uh, I'm trying to remove all doubt. You see, at the end of the day, I don't want either one, the male or the female, I don't want the bride or the groom, I don't want you standing at the altar about to enter into a lifelong conviction moment with doubts. And the only way that marriage preparation is really successful is if we expose and confront those doubts. I have these concerns. I have these problems. I need to put this on the table. We need to put them all out on the table right now so that we can enter into a convicted conviction life together. I have seen what happens when we don't resolve all of these doubts. You, you kind of, uh, all of us probably know, and maybe even some ladies here are in that space where, you know, you, it comes to D-Day and, and he's standing at the altar and you, you're about to head off to the church and you have all these overcoming doubts all of a sudden because that's what they are. Uh, people call them pre-wedding jitters. <laughs> no, they are pre-wedding doubts. All of a sudden you're flooded with doubts. All of a sudden you're not sure whether he's the one. <laughs> He's standing at the front of the church waiting for you. He's the one. You've had the time to deal with this. And they are doubts that sweep our minds. Why? Because we are flooded with the confrontation that we are about to make a commitment. What we are about to do takes conviction. There are women who you could not hold them back. They have, they have marched to the front because they, in full conviction, know he's the one. So how do we begin to overcome these doubts? How do we begin to resolve our doubts? We, first of all, we need to be honest that we have doubts. We need, to, we need to ask our questions. We need to confront our doubts. But, but I'm so amazed at how Jesus deals with this. Jesus is so glorious in how he deals with it and how he deals with the next guy. I know most people will know that we're probably going to speak about doubting Thomas next. Jesus is so compassionate. And he's so compassionate with John. Let's read on and see how, what Jesus says that we should do. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Verse 4, and Jesus answered them, you go and tell John what you hear and what you see. Okay. Go and tell John that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus will go on and give John an enormous commendation. Up until now, uh, all those born of women, there's been none like John. But the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's what Jesus goes on and says. But, but I love this. Here's what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't send the disciples back. You go and tell John, who does he think he baptised? 
Uh, hang on a second. John's whole life was banked on the message about me. Who does he think he is? Who is he looking for? What better? That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says what all of us should do as step number two in overcoming doubt is to feed your faith. Number two, feed your faith. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, you know what? He says, go back and tell John what you see and what you hear. What do we do with that bride that has those pre-wedding doubts? What do, what do, we, what do we try and do? We, we, we try to rationalise with them. Come on for a moment, please. What are we saying? What are you thinking? I can't go down. Is he the one? What about, hang on a second. What do we do? We begin to affirm what they know. You see, doubt often, and fear, as we'll see next week, doubt often exists in the world of possibilities. <laughs> What we need to do is to feed ourselves with the certainties. Jesus says, you know what? Overcoming doubt looks like this. Go and tell John what you see and what you hear. How much more evidence do you need? There's a word we're going to need to hang on to as we move our way through overcoming doubt. It's kind of like... uh, it's why I'm passionate about the evidences for the existence of God. I mean, we could, let's take an outlandish example of the existence of God here for a moment. There is strong evidence that God exists. And every now and again, there's a new scientific discovery that the, or maybe this is where the earth, all of this sort of stuff. And, and, and we think that it, and all of a sudden, seeds, there's another great word, seeds of doubt are planted within us and, and they begin to fester and grow. And we be, I wonder whether God really exists. What do we do? We go back, hang on a second, let's have a look at the evidence here. Uh, is there really any doubt? Is there really anything to doubt? Uh, the existence of God, uh, what, about, uh, what about all the evidence that is around us? What about, what about all the evidence in the universe? What about the beginning of the universe? We now know that the universe had a beginning. That's a truth that Einstein ran away from. Why? Because he had doubts and he hid those away because he knew there was implications. You see, Einstein held to the truth that uh, the universe was static and it didn't have a beginning. It's eternal. And he held to that because he knew that if, if the universe is not static but moving, then it must have a beginning point, which means it must have a beginner, <laughs> which is exactly what uh, Edward Hubble discovered when he looked through his Hubble telescope in 1929. He discovered that the universe is rapidly expanding away from us. And everybody goes, what's the big deal? The big deal is it's a big deal. Because if we press the rewind button, there's, we come back to a point where the universe began. The Kalam cosmological argument is this. Everything that exists has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe must have a cause. And his name is Jehovah. What about all the other evidence for God? What about... What about the historical evidence concerning Jesus Christ? What about the historical evidence concerning his resurrection? What about, the, what about the evidence from intelligent design, which all points to the fact that somebody, in a world of information, somebody's delivering that information? Feed your faith. Number two, feed your faith. Go back over the evidence. Go back over what God has done for you. Recount your story. We get an opportunity to do that now in the Hope Story Challenge. This is about, this is about the story of how God's hand has absolutely been seen in our lives.
Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. You know, the sad truth of when Jesus was here was many people saw the miracles that Jesus did. Many people heard his words. Many people saw the miracles. And many people's lives went completely unchanged. Many people festered in doubt. Many people lingered in doubt. They didn't take the evidence and do something with it. Moving on this morning, I I ask you to meet me in John chapter 20. I want to talk about our our second guy this morning. So if you're tracking with me this morning, uh, number one in overcoming doubt is to be honest about your doubts and confront your doubts. Ask your questions. Number two is feed your faith. That's what Jesus says. And, and now we're going to move to Thomas. Poor old doubting Thomas. He, he has, uh, he's kind of borne the name, hasn't he, doubting Thomas. But, but I would encourage everybody to replicate Thomas. And now that might sound outlandish this morning, but I would actually encourage everybody to walk the path that Thomas did. You see, Thomas, we don't, we don't see a whole lot of Thomas throughout the Gospels. In, 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 the, in the Gospel of John, we see, I think it's in chapter 11, that Thomas, he pipes up and says, when Jesus says he wants to go back to Jerusalem, uh, why would you go back there? They all seek to kill you. And Jesus says, we're going back to Jerusalem. And Thomas says, we should go with him. Even if it means to death, we should, we should absolutely go with him. And, and so Thomas is kind of this guy that's been with Jesus. He's seen all the miracles but then Jesus dies and Thomas is reeling. He's like the disciples, by the way. He's, he's struggling to understand and to, to fathom everything that's going on. Now all these doubts have come flooding in. And it's, and it's, because, of, it's because of misguided expectations. Again, you see, John the Baptist and all of the disciples, they had this preconceived notion that the prophecies meant that Jesus would come riding on a white horse ride on into Rome and overthrow Rome and set up an earthly kingdom. But that's not what the scriptures were pointing to. And so they had doubts. Jesus has now been crucified and Thomas has doubts. Now Thomas, verse 24 of chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, now Jesus has appeared to the other disciples. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. <laughs> We've seen him. Now this arrives in the lap of Thomas the same way a non-static universe would rest in the lap of Albert Einstein. <laughs> it's got enormous implications. Thomas knows immediately, if what you're telling me is true, then everything Jesus said and everything he did points to the fact that he is God. This has enormous implications for my life. It has enormous implications for our life too. The truth of Jesus, the truth of, the truth of his resurrection has enormous implications for his life that, that sometimes we allow doubt to pull us away from. But Thomas says, hang on a second, you say you've seen the Lord. Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. What's Thomas saying? <laughs> Thomas is saying, you know what, uh, I'm not going to take this at your word. 
Thomas says, I've got some enormous doubts. I've got some enormous questions. You know, I can't resolve these doubts. I can't overcome these doubts unless I place my finger in his hand or unless I place my hand in his side. And uh, Number three in overcoming doubt is so often we allow doubt to overtake us because we are closed off to the supernatural. That's what's going on with Thomas here. I kind of, I just want to lift the lid on this for a moment. If we serve the God of the Bible, why is impossible the word we use? If we serve the God of the Bible, if we're in relationship with him, we're we're in relationship with the person that spoke the universe into existence. By the power of his word, we understand that everything came into existence. That's what Hebrews 11 says. Uh, By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at his command. Whoa. Step number three in overcoming doubt, you know what? Be open to the supernatural and be open to the supernatural in your life. All too often we say the supernatural resides for the, for the super spiritual or it's just for, the, for the, those that are super called of God, you know, the, the superheroes of faith, the Charles Finneys and the, and the John Wesleys and the, and the Smith Wigglesworths. The supernatural is for them. God would never move like that in my life. And that's why we have so many doubts. <laughs> you can think what you like of Rodney Howard Brown, and he's, he's certainly made some very, some very questionable calls of recent times. But I did appreciate one thing that he said, because it kind of highlights a lot of what happens in church life today. He, I remember a meeting in Melbourne, I remember it quite distinctly, and everybody's very excited and everybody's all praising God and, and everybody's all dancing and singing very loudly. But Rodney Howard Brown said, you know what? He said, God could come down here tonight. He said, and God could lift the roof off this stadium, a very large stadium, by the way. God could lift the roof off this stadium, suspend it two metres in the air and gently put it back where it was. He said, and there would be those in this room that say the bolts weren't done up tight enough. <laughs> That's, that's Thomas. <laughs> Why would you say that? Because there's implications. The reality of God brings implications for your life. You see, the reality of God changes your passions. It changes your life. It changes the very reason why we are even here. It puts a completely different perspective. Now, now everything is not about this life. Everything is about the eternal life. This is, this is just kind of a, a quick step into the eternal. <laughs> very important step but a quick step into the eternal. It puts this world and this life and the abandonment of the passions and desires of this life in a completely different light now. Now God's not all about your comfort. (laughs) Let me make one statement that nobody's going to like. The greatest enemy to the church of Jesus Christ in this century, in this year, right now, the greatest enemy is not persecution. The greatest enemy is not affliction. The greatest enemy is not adversity. The greatest enemy to the church of Jesus Christ is comfort. We are, we become comfortable. There are too many people that are scared of God. We're going to touch on that next, next week when we're talking about fear. I'm going to encourage everybody to have a fear of the Lord, but not to be afraid of God. We're afraid of God. We want to control God. We want to put him into a box. <laughs> God, you can move inside of parameters that I'm comfortable with, but God doesn't move in those parameters. We are closed off to the supernatural, so therefore we have enormous doubts, just like Thomas. Uh, what? 
Jesus rising from the dead? Come on, you guys. If he's the son of God, why are we even having the conversation? If, if God is the same God that we all sing about every Sunday, if God is the same God that we all talk about <coughs> at our life groups and, and on Sundays, if he's that God, then why are we even having the conversation about whether he'll meet your needs? Why are we even having the conversation about whether you'll have the money to pay that bill? Why are we even having the conversation about whether he will keep you and protect you and guide you? Why are we even having that conversation? We serve a supernatural God. Let's not be closed off to the supernatural. A very great threat to the church today is we want to we wanna put the supernatural side of God over here. We want to acknowledge it. We want to pat it and stroke it when it suits us. You know, God's, God's powerful. Yeah. But when that power has implications in our lives, we're closed off to it. Step number three in overcoming doubt is live open to the reality of the supernatural and the miraculous. Let's keep reading on. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. He said to Thomas, he said, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand here and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And, and that's, the, that's the, almost the end of the story for Thomas. And Thomas highlights something that's very important for all of us. Here's number four in overcoming doubt. And it's, it's actually the most important part. Actually, this one and number five. But if you've missed the first three, then make sure you write this one down and make sure you write number five down. The most important step in overcoming doubt, the biggest help and the biggest aid that I can give you this morning is to doubt your doubts. Subject your doubts to the same scrutiny that you subject your beliefs to. I'm going to digress in a moment to a very important part of doubt, but I'm just going to, at the moment, I'm going to deal with what I've just said. You see, the claims of Christianity, the, the, the claims of the Bible undergo enormous scrutiny but when, when somebody poses doubt, we drop all the scrutiny and off we go. <laughs> of course, evolution must be true. Excuse me? Let's, let's do this right now, just very quickly and very briefly. Let me show you what this looks like. I, I can remember having a conversation very early on when I was a Christian and I was talking to somebody who was very science-based. And I don't have a problem with people that are science-based because I believe science and the Bible actually don't compete against each other. I believe they line up. But their thinking and their worldview was very science-based. It was very science-based. And inside of our worldview, we have to be able to answer the question of beginnings. Nobody stops long enough. This is why our churches would be full friends if the world would stop long enough to ponder this question. How did we get here? <laughs> You stop long enough to ponder that question and you're going 
you're going to begin doubting your doubts. Because, you know, so many people place the claims of Christianity under scrutiny, but we're teaching evolution in our schools. Stop the bus. Pull the bus up for a moment, please, uh, if we can, because let's just for a moment doubt our doubts. Somebody comes along with her and sows the seed of doubt. Well, you know, evolution is true and everything came here by millions and millions of years of evolution and there is absolutely zero evidence for evolution, friends. There is evidence for adaptation, but there's no evidence for evolution. (laughs) In fact, the author of the theory of evolution, Charles Darwin, in his book, The Origin of Species, he said, if anybody can prove the complexity of the living cell, my whole theory falls apart. Uh, hello, somebody ring the bell. <laughs> In 1952, I think it was, that they cracked the human genome code and realised there is an enormous amount of information in the human living cell, let alone the living cell of every organism on the planet. <laughs> Everything has DNA. The, every living cell is enormously complex. See, I'm beginning to doubt the doubts now. <laughs> Here's another question for evolutionists. If, if evolution is true, then, then how do you go from a primordial swamp of of a mass of cells to any kind of living being today. When you ask them that question, they will say, well, that's not evolution, that's abiogenetics. <laughs> in other words, we're beginning to doubt the doubts. Well, hang on a second. Charles Darwin had his doubts. <laughs> Charles Darwin had his doubts about his own theory. You can't tell me about origins, so it's not even really a uh, talk about origins. But, but let's have a talk about the evidence of evolution that you all claim you have, that you can look back over millions of years. No, 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 no. There is no such thing. There is no such evidence. Let me give you one, uh, let me give you one factor that is known amongst all, <laughs> in, even in the secular and atheistic circles. It's called the Cambrian Explosion. This is, I'm going to really paraphrase this, but... Google Cambrian Explosion. It'll give you the information you're looking for. Basically, if you could put the whole history of the globe on a clock face, uh, what you would have is, uh, the best way to describe it is, uh, as, that, as that minute hand works, imagine the whole existence of the planet is, is, is the hour on that clock face. As that hand moves around, we go, no life, 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 no life. And then we get to about the 11th hour, and in the space of a minute, bang, living organisms, complex life. What does that tell you? It tells you nothing evolved, that boom, it was created. You see, I've just doubted my doubts of evolution somebody sows a seed. You know, evolution proves that God doesn't exist. And you know, in just a very short period of time of doubting my doubts, I've overcome it. (laughs) Uh, I don't, evolution poses no doubt to the existence of God for me at all. Why? Because there is no evidence. There is no evidence for evolution. Now, Imagine you're in a courtroom, doubting your doubts looks like this. You can't fairly doubt your doubts without looking at both sides. You see, uh, what are we asking of a jury in a court of law? We're asking you, let's say somebody's on trial for murder. We're asking you to, with full conviction, there's, there's what the opposite of doubt is. You see, to be able to have full conviction... You have to be able to make a decision without any reasonable doubt. But to reach a position of full conviction and send somebody to prison, probably for their term of their natural life, 
25 years, depending now, I know, it's, it's amazing how cheap life has become, but you can't reach that place unless you doubt your doubts. You see, when we put a jury up in the stand, we don't just give them one side of the story. No, no, no. There is the prosecution and there is the defence. We're asking you to look at all of the evidence. And I would encourage Christians to look at all of the evidence. Look at the evidence that the atheists are putting up. Look at the evidence that the agnostics are putting up. Look at the evidence that everybody else is putting up, even those that practice other religions. Look at the evidence they are putting up, as well as the evidence for Christianity. (laughs) And you will begin to doubt your doubts and you will remove them. For me, it was a process of time, but I doubted my doubts. And I would encourage you to doubt your doubts. I would encourage you to look at all of the evidence. Why? Because God demands that we make a decision with full conviction, just like the jury. Remember one time having a conversation with somebody, (laughs) talking about Jesus and the resurrection, and how implausible he thought it was. And I, th- I said to him, I said, what's God got to do? <laughs> what's God got to do for you to remove those doubts? And that's going to move us into number five in a moment. He said, you know what, maybe if God comes down and, and puts on a bit of a display for me, then maybe, just maybe, <laughs> I'll believe in him. And I said, well, what are you waiting for? 2,000 years ago, God did just that. Friends, I want you to doubt your doubts. So often we, so often evolution proves that so often uh, society just blindly accepts what it's told. And just before I go any further, I want to digress for a moment because there are people listening to me today that fall into this bracket. And that's the bracket of self-doubt. You doubt yourself. You doubt that you're worthy enough. You doubt that God loves you. You doubt that God values you. It is time for those who self-doubt to stop living your life according to what everybody else has told you and start living your life according to how God has told you who you are. Stop living according to how everybody else tells you who you are and live your life according to how God tells you who you are. Doubt your doubts. Oh, but, you know, uh, my dad always said this, this and this. Yeah, we'll doubt those. Is that true? Is that who you are? No. Right. (laughs) Doubt your doubts. Overcome self-doubt by questioning those assumptions that come into your mind. Oh, no, well, God had never used me. Oh, really? No, no, you see, God would, God would never use me. I'm, I'm this hard, callous, often sinful kind of a person that, that God would never use. Uh, read your Bible, friends. That, you've just described nearly every person in the Bible that God used. They were fallen. They were fallible. And God's glory is seen in the fact that he chose them. God would never want me. I don't even know if I'm on God's radar. Read the call of Jeremiah. Before I fashioned you in the womb, I knew you and I consecrated you. Nobody is an accident. Start doubting your doubts. 
Nobody is an accident. Everybody has a purpose. Everybody has a call of God because that's what God says. And so many of us get trapped in this world of self-doubts. And I want you to doubt your doubts by getting into some different information. That's why we're very important about the Word of God. Let's have a look at, let's have a look at Thomas here. Now, as we come to number five, <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> Verse 26, Jesus says, appears to them and says, peace be with you. He says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands and put your hand here, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Number five in uh, overcoming doubt is dissolve your doubts by experiencing Christ. Dissolve your doubts by personally experiencing Christ. And uh, I really appreciate my first pastor, Wilfred. Great guy. Uh, and what I appreciated was... Um, often we would get in discussions because I had doubts as a young Christian and we would get into discussions about science and, and I would begin talking to my friends at school about God and they would bring up all this stuff and I said, I don't know how to, I don't know how to answer this and I don't know how to answer that. And I said, whoa. <laughs> he said, what's God done in your life, Sean? And I said, well, you know, I was in this situation and God's brought me here and he's done this. And he says, okay, <coughs> pardon me. Will says, you know, he said to me, you can argue facts and figures until you're black and blue in the face. He said, but nobody can argue with your personal testimony. He said, don't worry about arguing all the scientific facts and figures. He said, just tell them what God has done in your life. And so number five in overcoming doubt is experience. What, did, what does the psalmist say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. One of the greatest evidences and proofs for the existence of God is that he can be known and experienced today. And I want to encourage you, if you want to expose yourself to Christ, expose yourself to Christ, place your trust in him. There is, <clears throat> with every step of faith, there is enormous risk. And talk a little bit more about this next week as well. But I want you to understand that experiencing Christ and, and exposing yourself to Christ and all these sorts of things like that, it's going to involve great risk. You have a look over the last, just, just the last thousand years. Take some of the most prominent figures in the Christian faith over the last thousands of years. Those who have made a real mark on their generation. You know, the Martin Luthers, the Reformers, you know, all these kinds of guys, the Wesleys. All the, what you will see is they experienced enormous amounts of the supernatural, but they lived in risk. They lived in a place that if God doesn't come through, I'm gone. And they saw God come through in miraculous ways. The challenge of doubt, the challenge in overcoming doubt is to allow ourselves to exist in the world of risk. And by that I mean, this isn't about going bungee jumping and skydiving and going to do all those things if you like, they're risky and all of themselves. <clears throat> but what I call bungee jumping in God, it's kind of like, God, I'm going to leap off here believing that you, you're the rope and if you're not, then I'm just going to plummet here and, I'm... and you'll see God preserve you in some very glorious and supernatural and miraculous ways. But, but the clinching moment for Thomas was when he experienced Christ. 
This is what I love about Jesus. Jesus meets Thomas right where he's at. Thomas is full of doubt. He said, you know what? I'm never going to (laughs) believe. Yeah, I've been with Jesus for three years. I saw all the miracles. I heard all the teachings. But you know what? I'm not going to believe a single word unless I, unless I, I can put my finger in his hands. What does Jesus do? He doesn't rebuke Thomas. He doesn't, he doesn't come and, and criticise Thomas. He says, hey, Thomas, put your finger here. But I want to warn you. <laughs> Experiencing Christ comes with enormous implications. Thomas learned that. You can know and experience Jesus today. I would encourage you to live your life in the place of complete reliance and trust in him and you will see God move. You, you want to see the Holy Spirit move? Then get out on the limbs. That's where the, that's where the fruit is, friends. Get out on the edge. Get out on the ice. <laughs> so many of us, we kind of live in that world. You, you remember the story of the, the tightrope walker? Uh, tightrope walker, tightrope walking across Niagara Falls. He gets up and tightrope walks from one side to the other and there's a guy cheering him. You know, you're the greatest, you're the best. And then he comes back and he thinks, you know what, I'm going to do it again. And so he goes over without a harness and comes back. No harness, no, no safety rope. You're the greatest, you're the best. <laughs> and then he, for his final act, he pushes a wheelbarrow across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope and pushes it back. The whole time this guy's on the, on the edge is going, you're the greatest, you're the best. And the guy goes, yeah, cool. Get in the wheelbarrow. You see, Thomas is that guy. He's, yeah, Jesus, you're the best. Yeah, Jesus, you're the greatest. But when Jesus says, Thomas, get in the wheelbarrow, he's like, whoa. And so many of us are like Thomas. Jesus is saying to so many of us, you want to experience me? Get in the wheelbarrow. Thomas got in the wheelbarrow. Yeah. This was a defining moment for Thomas and it was not the end of his story. Thomas uh, goes on and says in verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. It's resolved for me now. Jesus, you are the son of God. You are my Lord and you are my God. And, And for those that know the story of Thomas, Thomas would now take the gospel to India with full conviction, no doubt. And when he was told in India to stop speaking in the name of Jesus and he refused, he was flayed, died a horrible death for Jesus with full conviction. Only a man goes to martyrdom with full conviction. Overcoming doubt requires that we are honest and upfront with our doubts. We confront our doubts. And, and number two is that if you want to overcome doubts, you've got to feed your faith. What is it that God has done? Get, in, get into his word. Get into the, the facts and the evidence for God. Number three, live open to the reality of the miraculous and the supernatural. Number four, doubt your doubts. Number five, experience God. And friends, what are you waiting for? What is holding you back? You see, Thomas, he stood at a line. It's kind of like coming to the altar with Christ. He knew that if I cross this line, there's no going back. You're asking me to cross a big line, but when he's confronted with Jesus and he experiences Jesus, all doubt is removed. He crosses the line. What's holding you back? 
What's holding us all back? Stop wallowing in self-doubt and, and start realising about what God, who God says you are. Friends, don't hide from your doubts. Overcome your doubts. Each of us can overcome our doubts and live a Christian life full of conviction. And if we do that, we will turn the known world upside down because that's what happened here. <laughs> it started with 120 people that were full of conviction and they turned the world upside down. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I just thank you. I pray right now that you would allow each one of us to confront our doubts. Help us to feed our faith. Help us to be open to the miraculous and the supernatural. Help us, O oh God, to doubt our doubts. And Jesus, we exclaim that we desire to taste of you, to experience you. Move each one of us into that place of full conviction and remove doubt, I pray. Father, I pray that you would keep each one and that we would stand in your grace in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you all. God keep you. God protect you. And uh, may his peace, which passes all understanding in these times, may his peace be the umpire in your heart. God bless you. And we'll see you next Sunday. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.